Welcome to Policy, Guns and Money, the Aspie podcast, with me, Olivia Nelson. This week, on the 22nd of August, Aspie marks 20 years since its establishment. To celebrate this occasion, Aspie's Executive Director Peter Jennings, Director of Defence Strategy and National Security Michael Shoebridge, and Aspie's Journalist Fellow Graham Dobell, join the podcast for a conversation on some of the key moments from Australia's strategic policy over the past two decades. They discuss some of the highlights from Aspie's analysis since its inception, covering the 9-11 attacks, to the US-Australia alliance, and regional security challenges. Topics which are explored extensively in Graham Dobell's new Aspie publication, An Informed Voice, Aspie from 2001 to 2021. We hope you enjoy their conversation. Well, Peter Jennings and Graham Dobell, wonderful to see you and to have a talk about this major work that you have managed to shepherd to completion, Graham. Aspie at 20, an informed and independent voice, about 250 pages, helping us to remember what Aspie has done and the issues that Australia has grappled with in security strategy and and defence over its 20-year period. We're having a talk today because it was Aspie's 20th anniversary just earlier this week. And in a really interesting way, Aspie's 20th anniversary is coinciding with the uh, other big events unfolding in our world right now. So Aspie was formed just weeks before the 9-11 attacks, and we're talking now just a couple of weeks from the 9-11 20th anniversary, and of course, in the context of the Afghanistan withdrawal. So Peter, how did Aspie come to be? How was it even something that the Australian government set up just before 9-11? Well, hi, Michael, and uh, thanks. Uh, it's it's interesting that Aspie was formed at a time before even 9-11 was part of our consciousness and decided by the Australian government effectively uh, in the year 2000 before the following 20 years' worth of Australian military operations in the Middle East. One of the key drivers for the foundation of Aspie was actually a completely different experience. It was the stabilisation operation in East Timor, uh, which was something that began to be part of Australian thinking around uh, 1999 and became a reality in 2000 uh, when Australia led an international stabilisation task force into East Timor as that country uh, moved to a very bloody independence from from Indonesia. At the time, I think there was a view in in the Howard government that uh, what they needed, uh, what Australia needed, was more, um, as, as the phrase famously came to be known, contestability and policy advice. Uh, there were times when John Howard and his defence ministers, I think, felt a little bit frustrated with dealing with the Defence Department. They wanted to know what were the levers that you could pull that would make this beast work to support the interests that they were trying to promote. And I think the idea of ASPE as it sort of gelled in the government's thinking around 1998, 99 was if we had uh, an independent organisation that was given a remit to be a sort of a a gadfly, a a critic of of current policy settings, that could only sort of strengthen the Defence Department's ability to produce good quality advice. I can tell you at the time, Defence's initial reaction, at least, was not one of uh, welcoming. 
because um, advice on defence and national security policy in Canberra in 2000, 2001 was pretty much a closed shop belonging to the national security establishment, the Defence Department and a few intelligence agencies. But that was the Institute's origin, was to create a red team uh, an organisation that was going to poke and prod the bureaucracy to try and produce better outcomes in terms of defence and security policy. That's a fascinating beginning because it kind of makes sense now too, you know, that idea that ministers, when they look across from Parliament House to Russell Hill, they see two things. They see a really useful set of um, organisational tools that they can apply to different problems in the world, East Timor being the one that, that you're talking about. But then it's also wrapped up in uh, opacity and mystery about, well, uh, what can it do, what can't it do, and how, how best can I use it? And you're saying that, well, that was a bit in John Howard's mind when, when he established ASPE. It would make it easier for ministers to understand and employ the tool that is the defence organisation. Yes, even before Aspie, I remember um, as a, uh, a senior um, parliamentary staffer sitting in a, a cabinet discussion, actually, about the possible options for Australia to deploy forces to Kuwait uh, in what became an oversight role uh, of um, a, a lockdown over the southern part of Iraqi airspace. Um, sounds like such a such a long time ago, but in the, in that meeting, you know, Howard and his ministers were sort of reaching to understand what the options were that defence could put forward, and it, and it turned out that defence was not able to send combat aircraft because they didn't have the electronic uh, protection system. That came as a surprise to Howard, uh, and it was a sense of um, wanting to, I think, just be more open in terms of thinking about how government shaped defence policy options that sort of gave rise to the foundation of the organisation. Um, you know, looking at where we are now, Michael, 20 years on, I think it's a different story in Canberra. I think it is a more open environment for thinking about policy in a whole range of areas, including defence and national security. But still, there is a bit of mystery and a, and a capacity to defence that I think can surprise uh, governments from time to time, particularly those ministers and prime ministers that are not deeply embedded in uh, understanding the details of defence policy thinking. Um, and so even today, I think ASPIC plays a, that, a, an important role as that provider of contestability in policy advice. And it's still something that governments um, look to, not, not always really wanting it um, at times, depending on the issues, but they, they nevertheless can find it useful. Mm. I suppose that makes me think about the... Uh defence analysis that ASPE's done. You know, in, in the ASPE at 20 publication, uh, Graham mentions that Mark Thompson did 16 annual cost of defence products and Marcus Hellier has now taken that on and continued those in a slightly different way. But um, the idea of helping the parliament and government understand what they're getting for what is now more than $40 billion per annum on defence has, has been key. Uh, and when I think about the use of the defence organisation and the strategic challenges Australia has dealt with since 2000, there's been a real shift from the kind of story you're talking about, you know, the use of part of the Australian Defence Force in a discretionary deployment as part of 
know, a distant operation, uh, like in Iraq or Syria or now uh, the ended Afghanistan deployment. And then this circulating back to, well, wait a minute, is the security of Australia something that should still drive force structure and is that why we're spending all of this money? And I think Gatsby's defence analysis and cost of defence work uh, has orbited around that. I'd say we're now back at a time where there's much more serious attention to what does meeting Australia's own security um, needs mean for the defence force and how does that affect structure and capability and some of the big multi-billion dollar choices the government has. Yes, it's interesting. We, we've, we've come in some senses a full circle from the deployed expeditionary operations that dominated defence thinking for much of the time we were in Iraq and Afghanistan to now a defence policy built around the concept of shape, deter, respond uh, to threats which are likely to emerge uh, in our region, largely driven now by a more aggressive um, People's Republic of China. But interesting to see that sometimes the questions are the same. We, we have to ask about, well, how valid is the concept of warning time? Uh, we have to ask, well, what exactly does deterrence mean if you're talking about a force of some 65,000 uh, military personnel? Um, so there's a certain circularity to, uh, to some of these debates, Michael. Um, let's bring in the author, though. I mean, uh, Graham Dobell had the um, unusual privilege of, I don't know if you realised this is what was going to happen, Graham, but promising to read every everything that Aspie had written in the last 20 or so years. Having gone through that experience, what was your reflection sort of looking back at that rather substantial body of work? At one level, Peter, it was easy because as a as a, a journalist in Canberra, I think I read most of it the first time round. Um, one of the, the the first hits for Aspie was that the press gallery worked out almost from day one that this was a strange and interesting beast that would be a source of good stories, a source of talent, and, and a source of information. And so that part of the brief was very apparent, uh, and it wasn't just if you like, ministers and government that could see the need for this, this new beast. Uh, the journalists could too. And I think also um, there are a set of Canberra stories that is, if you go back and look at those initial Cabinet uh, submissions about creating Aspie, they go to some of those Canberra elements. There is, of course, that point about demystifying defence. I think that's that's part of the basic story you've been talking about, um, that Defence was the keeper of the history. Defence was the sole provider of advice. And it's quite clear from the Cabinet documents and from what ministers and the Prime Minister at the time have said that that wasn't going to be allowed to continue. They wanted more sources of advice. They wanted contestability. But it feeds through to another element in the Canberra story, which, of course, in the Canberra story, one must always follow the money. Uh, and... Any set of government ministers don't have to be in office very long before they realise that much as they love the slouch hat and the, and the military, they hate the amount of money that it costs. Um, and that was the other one of the other really big drivers. The Howard government wanted to get a handle on how the equipment game was playing, the, the, the kit that they got for, with, for the capability. And, in fact, it's interesting to look at the memoirs written by Australia's longest-serving treasurer, Peter Costello, quite a you know, measured and 
fairly entertaining book. But in the middle of this discussion of Australian economic policy, there's a one and a half page scream of pain where he essentially talks about the fact that defence was out of control, that the Treasury, the finance couldn't get a handle on what this strange beast was doing with all of its billions of dollars. And I suppose the other dimension is the policy game. Where does defence sit into the policy discussions? How does it feed through to the larger discussions about Australia's national interest? And in all of those areas, the cash the policy, the camera games and understanding defence, there were needs and niches that ASPE could come to fill. And that's been really a great part of its success, its ability to stand in the middle of that Canberra game and help the understanding, help the debate. And that, that really has been one of the things that brings all of these diverse reports, these very many different issues together because they're all coming through those set of Canberra needs. Yeah, that's interesting, because one of the things that struck me looking at the assembled chapters is it's really a description of how ASPE's role is to be slightly ahead of government thinking and of institutional advice and to be an input into it before it's all formed and congealed. And that means it's uncomfortable because it's usually providing insights and recommendations that disturb the continuity of policy settings. So you look at the work that's been done on terrorism, Iraq and Afghanistan, or the the emerging uh, role that cyber and technology are going to play in our world. In all of those areas, ASPE's job has been to say those uncomfortable things in advance of policy getting really nailed down. Uh, Peter, do you think your approach of there is no ASPE line has helped with that by uh, letting people be a bit more diverse in their views? Yes, I think so, because um, th- there's little point ASPE as, as, a, as a small organisation attempting to maintain a sort of a corporate view on what are a whole bunch of really complex issues. A good case in point, uh, Michael, has is submarines. Um, you know, over, over the years, we've published uh, quite extensively about the, the economics and, and the uh, and the strategy and the capability issues associated with submarines. Uh, we've had folk arguing for nuclear propulsion. We've had folk arguing for off-the-shelf purchases from overseas, for domestic construction, uh, folks we've- saying that the submarine has had its day, folk that are wanting to privilege instead um, autonomous vehicles. I, I think that's been good generally for, frankly, a fairly faltering debate. Um, uh, which has suffered from a want of basic information about these issues. And sometimes, you know, what's more important than actually having a line sorted out uh, is simply to have people talking about the issues that are important and then hoping that a public debate helps to shape some sort of outcome from that process. Mm. I think the point is that your ability to say things that the bureaucracy is not prepared to say um, you've got this small, nimble, nimble think tank. It's a minnow, really, within the Canberra system, but it's a minnow with moxie. And so if you look at, say, the first big policy impact that ASPE has is as at the end of a almost a five-year decline, Solomon Islands is, is, is declining into chaos. 
But Canberra is still standing by this policy position that it's an independent state. We can't intervene in an independent neighbouring state. It's going to have to work it out for itself. ASPE produces a report which essentially says Solomon Islands is a failed state. It has some very important Solomon Island leaders actually contributing to this report. But not only is it describing the chaos, the five years of chaos in Solomons that everyone can see, it then offers a set of solutions about what would an intervention look like. It would have to be police-led. It would have to have the support of the whole region. It can't just be Australia, the, 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 the regional power stepping in. It, it, in a sense, lines up a set of steps that could be taken. But more importantly, it helps break that Canberra consensus wide open uh, and is there is there at that moment when government is deciding that it must act and suddenly here's a set of ideas that can be put very quickly into practice. Mm, and that the institutions of government can grab hold of and, and do the thinking around and implementing. I was thinking myself, looking at the work that the Ramsey example, uh, the 5G decision that the Australian government made in August 2018, and Australia's emerging policy around handling China are all examples where ASPE has created some space uh, for government decisions and, and government thinking, maybe enabling that through the kind of debate that you're talking about, Peter. And the beauty of a think tank is that it can be incredibly close to the bureaucracy. I mean, physically, can, uh, ASPE sits in the middle of the parliamentary triangle. So physically, it's very close. Its understandings are very close. But because it's a think tank, it has no bureaucratic interests. It doesn't do any administration. It doesn't carry the policy. Um, and that ability to be part of the process, to be creative about it, to be cooperative about it, but to bring a contestability, contested approach to it gives you an ability to have some influence on key debates. Mm. Yes, I think that's more accepted in 2021 than it was back in 2001, Graham, would be my reaction to it. Um, I mean, I, I well recall the response to that report that was produced on the Solomon Islands, which was really calling for an, an Australian stabilisation mission of the type that subsequently um, happened. The first instinct of the bureaucracy uh, in DFAT and Defence was to say, well, uh, that report had no impact whatsoever on our thinking about what, what subsequently happened with the creation of Ramsey. And, um, you know, that I think is now widely known, uh, particularly after the uh, declassification of the Cabinet documents, not, not to be the case, but it didn't really matter because what ASPE was attempting to do then was to have people inside the system own new policy approaches rather than sort of claim responsibility for it. I, I've always thought, um, you know, over my time in the organisation that when we're really earning our stripes, um, we're, we're probably pushing the limits of contestability of policy advice in ways that some people find not so comfortable in the, in the Canberra system. So, for example, ASPE's done a lot of work over the last half decade and more talking about the rise of a more assertive China pointing to the problems which that has created for Australia, for example, in the protection of critical infrastructure like 5G, and really issuing a warning call, which was not that congenial to parts of the bureaucracy, which had over the years been responsible for building that very bilateral relationship. And there were certainly times during that period where I felt that, um, uh, you know, we were 
uh, whilst um, senior officials could uh, support the theory of contestability of policy advice, the reality of it was something they weren't particularly enjoying. Looking back at it, I think we made mostly the right judgment calls on those issues, and it's now much closer to where government and opposition and the bureaucracy finds itself, not necessarily because of the quality of our work, more because of the nature of the more assertive China that we're dealing with, which is hard to avoid. But nevertheless, Aspie has been able to create the thinking space within which these public issues are debated, and I think that's been you know, frankly, one of the best things that the organisation's done in its brief history. And I I suppose you can point in terms of that more openness, that that, that more open Canva system, you could probably point, I think, to something like the evolution of Canva's thinking about submarines. Now, submarines has been one of the most vexed and difficult and expensive headaches that Canberra has grappled with. Uh, and I wouldn't say we've got it right, but what I what I think you can say when you look at uh, the evolution of the the submarine discussion in this town is that the levels of understanding of what's involved, if you like, the taboo areas. This is a defence topic. We mustn't talk about it. All of those old taboos no longer apply. Uh, we might still be struggling to get our head around how we do submarines, and it's going to be a long and hard journey. But the levels of public information, understanding of what the issues are, why we are doing it much more. Now, that's not just Aspie's doing, but I think Aspie's elements of that. And you bring it back, I think, also to the Aspie model, that, that think tank model, which was a, was a new way of doing it in Canberra, well understood in lots of other capitals around the world, but certainly not in this town. And in some ways, it's a very simple model, but it can be really, really effective. You, you, you get smart people you get those smart people to follow the facts and you give them the fullest freedom to report on what they find. Now, in Canberra, that's a pretty rare freedom and it can be a very powerful model. Yeah, well, that's interesting because I think part of what ASPE has done over time is to state and test the assumptions behind uh, some of the big policy directions that Australia was taking. We've talked about the Ramsey example of South Pacific policy. That's continuing now around analysis about the Pacific family idea and um, how it's being implemented and what the next measures might be, including things like um, Australia's approach to COVID and partnership with the South Pacific. If that isn't part of being a South Pacific family, what is? So testing assumptions and saying what they are seems to me to be fundamentally important. Another example would be the work around China testing the really solid bipartisan and business assumptions that the way we engage with China from the time Australia opened to China in 1972 under Whitlam was still fit for purpose now. And uh, Aspie's analysis says uh, those assumptions aren't fit for purpose. And Peter, I think you're right. Uh, the way China has behaved has brought the world to that analysis rather than just been convinced by fine Aspie work. And now we've got the big assumptions that need to be tested around the US alliance and its future direction and contribution to Australian stability. And I'd add in the post-Afghanistan operation world, what's the future of counterterrorism? Uh, is that 
stable or is it actually a really disparate and diverse set of challenges that doesn't look like what we've had before? So stating and testing assumptions seems to me to be key to what ASPE does. Well, it sounds like we're going to need ASPE to keep going for another 20 years, Michael, in order to be able to answer uh, some of these questions. Uh, you know, one measure of the maturity of the business model is that we've just recently had released by the Parliament Foreign Affairs, Defence and Trade Committee a report looking at how to develop, I guess, broader thinking around Australian foreign policy options. Um, and one of its recommendations is that there should be created an institute for foreign policy pretty much built on the ASPE business model to do similar types of research. And that tells me, in a sense, that we've um, broken the back of the the case for how um, small uh, institutions like this can actually play disproportionately valuable roles. I'm going to hand back to Michael to uh, close off on this, but just want to say congratulations to Graham Dobell for producing a PhD-sized analysis of Aspie's intellectual contribution over the last 20 years and doing it in about six months, Graham. That's a magnificent mm. effort. And um, I, I promise I'll never ask you to do that again just as you're about to go off in your summer holidays. But my thanks for what you've done. It's a really tremendous contribution, a, fa a fascinating read in its own right, because really it tells you about the journey Australia has been through for the last 20 years on mm. defence and security mm. policy. So, so well, well done, Graham. Yes, Peter, you, I was, was going to... Sorry, Graham, I was going <laughs> to thank you in the same way, but say I was looking forward to volume two that you would produce 20 years from now. But I'll, I'll let you have the final word, Graham, and I'll, I'll just... That last thought that Peter left us with, that maybe the Parliament's thinking about a foreign policy version of ASPE. So here on ASPE's, ASPE's 20th birthday, we, we're hearing that ASPE might have a younger sibling, a foreign policy sibling. I don't know how any 20-year-old takes the news of the birth of a new baby sibling, but let's celebrate that possible future event. Graham, last word to you. Thank you both for that. Um, thank you for an extraordinary journey. Uh, I, I think the, the, the worst thing about writing an intellectual history of Aspie is there's a hell of a lot of intellect to get into those pages. And the worst thing was all the, the really good stuff that had to be left out. Uh, and I think the other thought that I would finish on is how well the Australian Strategic Policy Institute has lived out its name, that it really has helped to deliver Canberra what Australia needs in imagining ends, in shaping ways and selecting means. Um, and that's what any good strategic policy institute should be doing. So happy birthday to Aspie. Thanks, Graham. Thanks, Graham. That's all we have time for on this episode of Policy, Guns and Money. The link to the new publication is included in your episode notes. We look forward to bringing you more analysis soon.